0: few things make us more uncomfortable than an outcast and an outsider. We, generally speaking, fear them and fear being the outcast and the outsider. And this leads us to finding our birds of a feather and flocking together, right? And this takes shape early on in our life, particularly in in junior high and high school. We find our people, people that look the same way, act the same way, like the same things. We find our place amongst the jocks or the musicians or the goth people or the smart people, the religious people the
1: video-gaming people, the troublemaking people, the you-name-it people. And what's really interesting is that we never quite grow out of that. Even as
0: we change, even our preferences change, and the, the world changes, we never really grow out of generally sticking with people who are in the same age and stage of life who have the same social status or ethnicity or political views or job or personality. And this is often because seeking and sustaining relationships with people that are similar to us is is natural. It's easy. It's comfortable. We find our people and we stick with those people.
1: And this is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a gift
0: to have deep relationships with people of similar backgrounds that that have similar loves and tastes and qualities. This is good and healthy. But everyone in this room has got to admit, everyone in this room has got to admit that it's often uncomfortable for us to both seek and sustain relationship with people that are outside of our comfort zone outside of our
1: group, outside of our tribe. It's just uncomfortable. But friends, Jesus came to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And we are going to behold this truth in God's Word this morning. So,
0: please turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. If you do not have a Bible, you could find one in the pew near you. You could find John on page 886. 886. You're going to be helped, we will all be helped to keep our Bibles open to this passage this morning. Please follow along as I read the whole chapter. This is, hands down, the best part of the service this morning, right here. This is not the time to check out,
1: this is the time to press in and listen intently. John chapter 4.
0: Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he had been talking with a woman. For no one said, what do you seek? And why are you talking with her? Do you not say there are yet four months when then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you do not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. When this man heard that Jesus had come from from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is God's word to and for the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray once again. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit now to open your word up to us and open us up to your word. Cause us to behold your glory in the face of Jesus this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in John chapter 1, we beheld that. Jesus is God. That's what we beheld in John 1. And we could trace that through the whole of that chapter. But here's the thing. As we continue in the book of John, all of what we've been reading points back to that truth that He is God. And we saw this in chapter 2 where we beheld that in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come that He has brought a kingdom. And that kingdom was anticipated in the Old Testament and then inaugurated in the New Testament through His person and work. And then in John chapter 3, we saw that in order to be a part of the kingdom, what's got to happen? Well, We must be spiritually transformed. We must be made new through Jesus and believe in the Gospel in order to be saved. For it is in and through Jesus, that a new kingdom has come and that many souls can be brought out of the kingdom of of death and darkness and into God's kingdom of light and life. That's what we have seen thus far. All praise to Jesus. Amen? Amen. And John wants us to see here in chapter 4 is that Jesus did not only come to build a kingdom of people who were supposedly on the inside, like Nicodemus, who thought he was a part of the kingdom because of his uh, ethnicity, his bloodline, his religious standing. But in this chapter, John wants us to see clearly that Jesus also came to save outsiders and outcasts. He has come to save outcasts and outsiders, and we won't be able to overturn every rock in this passage this morning there's a lot here but here is the big idea of chapter four here it is jesus came to seek and save spiritual outcasts and outsiders jesus came to seek and save spiritual outcasts and outsiders and here in this chapter we are given an example of each Jesus came to seek and save spiritual outcasts in verses 1 through 45, and Jesus has come to seek and save spiritual outsiders in verses 46 to 54. That's the main idea and our outline this morning. And just a heads up, point 1 will be a little longer than point 2. So, point 1, Jesus came to seek and save outcasts in verses 1 through 45. Well, we find in verses one through six of our passage that Jesus' ministry is spreading rapidly, right? We saw that there in those opening verses of the chapter. And like that Sherman Williams paint logo of the paint kind of slowly covering over the earth, the message of Jesus and his kingdom is slowly covering Jerusalem to Judea and is now making its way down into Samaria, as we read there in verse three. And Jesus is passing through samaria something that is intentional on his part he could have taken a different route but he didn't but he didn't and he comes to as we read a town named sakar near the field that jacob had been had given to his son joseph and we read that jacob's well is there And that Jesus was wearied from his journey and he sits beside the well and John tells us that it is about the sixth hour of the day, which is around noon, so noontime. And in the the past three chapters, right, of John, we have seen the divinity of Jesus, right, his power and his glory over and over again. But here
1: we receive an insight into his humanity, that he is wearied, that he is tired, Yes, Jesus is God, but He is also human.
0: He is truly God and truly man, which meant that He got tired, just like you and I. He needed food and drink just like you and I. And He's sitting here at the well. And this place is significant, once again, because John is going to connect here. He's going to connect Jesus' ministry to Jacob's ministry. That's, That's what's going on here. And we're going to hear more about that in just a moment. But a woman from Samaria comes to the well, and Jesus asks for a drink. It's hot. The sun is up. He's tired, alone. He's thirsty. And Jesus engages this Samaritan woman in a conversation about water in verses
1: 7 through 15, a conversation about worship, conversation about who he is, And then a conversation
0: there about local and world missions. There's a lot going on in this conversation. But there are two primary threads that I want us to trace in the the tapestry of this story. The first is the fulfillment that Jesus has brought. And then the second, we want to look at the compassionate heart of Jesus. So first is fulfillment, theological fulfillment in Him. And then, second, his compassionate heart. Those are the two that we're going to look at. So, first, let's trace the thread of, of theological fulfillment in Christ. Again, Jesus is at this, this well that belonged to Jacob. And we know from the context that the Samaritan woman is aware of this. She's kind of focused on the physical, but Jesus wants her to see the spiritual. And here in this conversation, John once again is teaching us again that Jesus is the fulfillment of Jacob's covenant. For just as we read at the close of chapter 1 that that Jesus is Jacob's ladder, that he is the stairway to heaven, here he is sitting at Jacob's well. Coincidence? No. No way. This is not coincidence. The point that John is making here is that Jesus is better than Jacob. That he has brought something greater and more fulfilling. For in Him, living water from a bottomless well of life and of grace has come. Just as well water may satisfy the body temporarily, the point is being made here that in Jesus, living water can satisfy the soul eternally. And that soul, as it says in verse 13, will never thirst again. But there's another layer here as well. It's that Jacob's well had run its course. His covenant was spiritually meant to hydrate for a season. But it was not meant to spiritually hydrate eternally to satisfy God's people eternally. It ran dry. And Jesus is saying that the living water that He has brought of eternal life will never run dry.
1: He is encouraging the woman to not look to the past but to the present in what Jesus is doing.
0: And I believe that Jesus is encouraging us to do the same here. It's so easy to glory in the past that we miss out on the the glory of the present. It's so easy to do this. We can be so focused on what has been, what the Lord has done, and we can idolize that. We can can idolize that both in our home life and in our church life together. It's so easy to, to look to the past and not to what Jesus is doing in the present. So church, don't trade
1: the past for the present. Look at Jesus now and see what he's doing now for our joy and his glory. Well, the conversation continues. Jesus
0: presses in. To her personal life. And in an attempt to kind of take the eyes off of her, we're going to look more at her life here in a moment, the woman says, oh, I perceive that you're a prophet in verse 19. And then wants to talk about worship. More specifically, she wants to talk about the location of where to worship. And Jesus takes the opportunity to to move uh, further down that thread of of fulfillment in him and once again return to this theme that he is the true temple. See, the Samaritans and the Jews had been so focused on the place of worship, a mountain or Jerusalem. But Jesus says in verse 20-25 through that the hour is coming, the hour referring to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And that hour will reorient all of worship around him. And when that hour comes, his people will worship in spirit and in truth. Not in a place, but through a person. God is spirit. It was always the plan for God to be worshipped in spirit by everyone everywhere. But God is also truth. It was always the plan for God to be worshipped for who He is in the way that He is revealed through the Son Jesus and His Word here from Genesis to Revelation. It was always the plan. It's not about a building. It is not about a place. It is about a person. The person of Jesus. And this conversation reveals this and reveals that true fulfillment has come in Him and that
1: He is the object of true worship we not only see this thread though this this fulfillment thread but we also see a thread of of christ's
0: compassionate heart there is so much deep compassion and scandalous grace here see in in that day jews didn't talk to samaritans and why was this the case well There's a lot of information about the Jew-Samaritan divide, but this divide goes all the way back to uh, Assyria. In 722 BC, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and the region of Samaria came to be an ethnic and religious and political melting pot, distinct Israelite identity was lost in Samaria. However, here's the catch. Like the Jews, Samaritans also worshipped Yahweh. And they, they worshipped him from a certain section of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, but they kind of omitted a lot of the other Old Testament writings in their worship. So they were kind of there, but kind of not. And all of this led to a deep and sinful hostility between Jews and Samaritans. The Jews saw Samaritans as cultural Social and spiritual lepers. And so this Samaritan woman was to the common Jew
1: a spiritual outcast, one seen and set outside of the true people of God. And so this is scandalous for Jewish Jesus
0: to be talking to a Samaritan. And besides this, she's a woman. It was not Socially appropriate for men to just strike up conversation with a woman. And women were also seen as less than in that culture in that day. There was a common Jewish prayer prayed, prayed by men that, thank God, I am not a
1: woman. We may laugh at that, but that's, that's sad. We also see here that this woman is alone getting water from the well. She is
0: coming in the heat of the day. She's not coming with the other women in the morning or in the evening when it's cooler. She's seen by her own people as, a, as an outcast. She's likely without friends. And, and all of this is connected to the shame, as Jesus kind of points out here in verses 16 through 18, of her marriage and sex life. She has been married and divorced five times over. And the man that she's currently living with, sleeping with, is not her husband and just like jesus sovereignly knew and saw nathaniel back in chapter 1 remember remember that when he saw nathaniel under the fig tree jesus sees and knows all things about this woman her life her shame her spiritual
1: leprosy jesus knows all things about all people including you and i and if you're a christian here today may we imitate Jesus here, in the way that He moves toward and incarnates
0: toward this, this person in compassionate love and grace. So I ask, who, who are the outcasts of your life? Maybe it's the homeless person on the street. Uh, maybe it's the person who has a different outlook on all of life uh, compared to you. But I want us to think for a minute, who are, who are the outcasts in your life here in this church? Those that you sit in the, in the pews with week after week, but that maybe see things a little differently than you, that come from a different
1: background, that maybe have some, some theological differences or political differences, whatever differences. Are you willing to see them and engage them, speak to them, be
0: hospitable toward him? Toward them. Who are the outcasts of your life? Let me encourage you to write down two. Write down one outside the church
1: and one inside the church that you can can incarnate toward and move toward this week. Ask the Lord to soften your heart toward them. Move toward them in compassion and grace with the Lord's help. Well, we cannot miss the overarching point here, though.
0: This passage tells us more about Jesus than anything else. And that is that he's compassionate, and that he has come for the outcast. And that he has revealed himself, himself to this woman as the Messiah. And that's what we see in verses 25. We see, and 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 also beyond, we see that. She says that, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus responds, how? He says, I am He. I am the Messiah. I am the one that you've been waiting for. I am the one who has come to seek and save people who are lost in sin and in darkness. And it's here in this kind of beautiful and intimate moment that the (laughs) disciples come barging in. In verses 27-30, through Uh, and they, they still can't see clearly exactly what Jesus is doing and what he has come to do. And it's in the midst of this moment that we, that we notice, we should notice in verses 28-29, through 29, that the woman leaves the jar at the well and goes back to the city. And this is significant. We should ask, why would John make this point? Why would John mention this, that she left the jar at the well? Well, I believe, along with many others before me, That this signifies that after she met Jesus, she left her old life at the well and went back to the city to proclaim her new life in Jesus. What's going on here? Because in verses 28 through 30, she goes and boldly shares about who Jesus is and what he has done. That he has come to seek and save outcasts. That he is sovereign. That he knows all things,
1: including her life. And he sees and knows all things about your life. He sees, this is kind of the lesson for us here, He, he sees and knows the, the sins that you've committed or, or the sins that have been committed against you. He sees and knows your shame. And He alone can take that pain and shame. And He did this by, by compassionately coming
0: and walking a path of shame and suffering to to the cross, where He was crucified for your sin and for mine. And on on the cross, He took the shame and the guilt of our sin, and then three days later was resurrected in glory, giving us assurance that our shame and guilt can be washed away by His blood, as we just sang a moment ago. This is the gospel for the Samaritan woman. This is the gospel for us right here in this room. And all we got to do is repent and believe in the work of Jesus, and we'll be saved like that. We'll be washed and made new. If you have questions about this, I'm going to be standing in the back after the service. I would love to talk with you. Or you can talk to one of the other elders here in the church. Don't leave this place without talking about
1: the Gospel and what it looks like to to leave this place made new by the work of Jesus. But if you are a Christian, like the Samaritan woman, may we boldly declare this Gospel to those
0: around us. This testimony that, that we have been given a new identity and a new life in Christ so that other outcasts might come and see Jesus. Because the harvest Is ready, brothers and sisters. The harvest is ready. That's the point here of verses 31 to 38. This section of the passage begins with the disciples concerned that Jesus hasn't eaten. They did go to the village after all, right? But Jesus uses this moment to talk about the spiritual over the physical. And he encourages them and us here in verses 35 to 38 to lift our eyes and to see a field ready for the gospel. That the Samaritan outcast was a part of that harvest. Here's the point here. Again, Jesus came to seek and save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. From Jews like Nicodemus to Samaritans to Gentiles as we're going to see in the next section in just a moment. And the harvest is ready.
1: And Jesus has invited us to be a a part of seeking out the lost in this world.
0: So here's the application for us. The harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. So let's be faithful. Let's be faithful to Jesus to share our testimony of salvation with those around us, but to also raise up and send and support gospel workers to take that gospel to the world.
1: To the unreached world. We're going to seek to do this more intentionally. In the, in the coming years, Lord willing. The harvest is ready. So let's go. Well, in verses 43-45, through 45, we read that, that Jesus departs from Samaria,
0: an area that responded to Jesus in belief and true faith. And He heads back into a Jewish context. And, and again, there's a con- contrast here between those who have truly believed, like the Samaritans, and those who are, are still kind of just wanting to show, like the Jews. And here we read that Jesus and His disciples come full circle back to Cana. And we see here that Jesus did not only come for outcasts, but He also came for outsiders. And that brings us to point two. Jesus came to seek and save spiritual outsiders. Well, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he went down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did. When he
1: had come from Judea to Galilee, isn't this healing amazing? It's amazing.
0: And before we dive into these verses, let's zoom out for a moment. I want us to show see how Scripture is interpreting Scripture here, because a little later in the New Testament, in in Acts chapter one verse eight, before Jesus ascends into glory he tells the apostles that they will receive power from the Holy Spirit. And when it has come upon them, they will testify, they will be a witness to what? The gospel work of Jesus in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what we should see, what we should notice here is that thus far in the book of John, we have seen the word and work of Jesus spreading from Jerusalem in chapter 3 to Samaria, in this passage here, and then now to the Gentiles. See, in John, there's been a movement from Nicodemus to the Samaritan woman to now a Roman official. And unlike an outcast, someone who is seen and set outside a group like the Samaritans were to the Jews, this official is representative of the Gentile nations, those outside of the Jewish and Samaritan faith altogether. And in verse 46, we read that Jesus has come back to Cana, the place where he did his first
1: sign, and this official comes to him and says, my son is at the point of death. Can you imagine this scene? You can imagine this this moment while, while this man is pleading before Jesus that his son is dying. And if you have lost a child, either in miscarriage
0: like my wife and I did many years ago, or if you've lost a child
1: later in adolescence or even later in life, you know the desperation of this Father. Jesus uses this request to first rebuke and challenge the Galilean crowds,
0: and second, to display His glory. In verse 48, He says to the official, but really to the observing crowds, He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The you there is plural. The you is plural. See, Jesus knows that many of the Jews and others that were simply watching for a show and not for a Savior, for a manifestation, not a Messiah, were there. Kind of in the background. And so He kind of addresses them as He addresses this, this, this Gentile
1: Roman soldier or official. And the official sees, though. He he, knows, he sees who Jesus
0: is, and he says, Sir, once again, he says, Come down before my children, before my child dies. And Jesus responds in verse 50, Go, your son will live. Jesus doesn't need to be near the child. He doesn't need to touch the child. He is the very word of God, and all he has to do is speak. And the boy is healed. And here's the point. There is power in the word of Jesus. There is power in his word. There is power in his word. Here, from Genesis to Revelation. Not just in the red letters of the New Testament, but in every word
1: in all of Scripture. And this word is trustworthy. And it is profitable. And it will never return void. Even when we can't see the results. This is the power of the Word. Do you believe that? Amen. Well, what is the response to this? The man believed. He believed the Word
0: of Christ, and he returns home. And as verses 51 through 53 make clear, he did this even before he saw that his son was healed. We're going to drill down on that in just a moment a little more. But his servants come, as we, as we read there, come and meet him, and, and they tell him that his son is, is healing. And we are told that the hour that the son was healed was the same hour that Jesus said he would be. And we read again, verse 53, that the Gentile Roman official himself believed, and all of his household came to believe. This is to show us that Jesus came to sovereignly save whoever believes in Him, just as it said back in John 3:16, "From the Jews to the Samaritans to the Romans and beyond. John wants us to see this clearly. When the section closes, this chapter closes with verse 54. This was the second sign that Jesus did when He
1: came from Judea to Galilee. And the point of the sign is this. Jesus came to seek and save
0: outsiders. To seek and save Gentiles. And if there is hope for the Samaritan outcast and for the Roman outsider, there is hope
1: for Hillsborough, Oregon. There is hope for this church in the Gospel of Jesus.
0: But let's let's address an elephant in this text and in this room.
1: What if the official son wasn't healed? Have you considered that? Bringing this down to the pavement of our lives, what do we do if and when God doesn't physically heal? More broadly, what do we do when suffering comes into our life, just as it did the official's life, the Samaritan's life? What do we do? Where do we go when the going gets tough? Well, we all have and are and will face suffering in this life. It's guaranteed
0: in a fallen world. Many of us know, in one form or another, and are maybe even now facing and enduring suffering with our parents or our children, our family our friends,
1: and many of us are asking the questions, does God see what I'm going through? Will, can God heal? What is God doing? Can I trust Him? Can I trust His Word? Have you ever asked those questions? I have. And I believe these verses hold a key
0: to belief and trust in Christ. They hold the key to, to true faith as
1: we who are Christians, those who were once outcasts and outsiders, made a part of the family of Jesus. I believe that every Christian in this room
0: can take away a key to belief and trust here. Because did you notice in verse 50? that the official took Christ at his word and then returned home before he
1: knew that his son would be healed. He believed Christ no matter what. He believed Christ no
0: matter the result. And this is the essence, the core of authentic and true faith. See, no no matter our circumstances, no matter our desperation, no matter our suffering, no matter what we cannot see, no matter how
1: we feel, a mark of true belief and trust, a mark of true faith, is trusting Christ and His Word just like this official did before we can see the outcome. Even after the outcome comes. And this is hard. This is hard. But this is the essence of true faith. A faith that trusts
0: and rests in Jesus knowing that He gives and takes away according to His will and way. A trust and a faith that that rests in Christ knowing that He is working all things for the good of those who are His. Those who are called according to His purpose. A faith that trusts and rests and proclaims that God is good all of the time in spite of the intensity of our
1: faith and in spite of our often lack of faith. That is true faith. A faith that is,
0: as it says in Hebrews 11, verse 1, is assured of things hoped for and not seen. So true faith is not a blind leap. It is not a a prosperity-driven leap that expects
1: our our best life now. True faith is marked by trust in God's Word no matter the outcome. And this Roman official is displaying that trust and is encouraging us in that trust. And it's
0: powerful. This kind of faith is modeled by a Samaritan in the first part of our chapter and then a Gentile, an outsider right, to Judaism in this section, just like us. So may we be marked, may we in this room, every Christian in this room, be marked by the same deep faith and true trust for our good, even when we can't see it, for the glory of God. Believing and trusting and knowing that Jesus came and will have the final word for spiritual outcasts
1: and outsiders. And friends, when we cannot see clearly, here is, here is the essence continued here. For one day,
0: Christ will return and faith will give way to sight. And on that day, there will be no more hunger nor thirst on that day, the, the sun will not strike, nor will there be any scorching heat. For Jesus will be in the midst of the throne, and He will be our shepherd forevermore. And he will, as the book of Revelation says, He will guide us to springs of living water eternally. And Christ will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither will there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have fully and ultimately
1: passed away. And we will be with, and we will be satisfied in Christ forevermore. Well, we should close. In this passage, we have beheld that Jesus came to disturb the comfortable
0: and comfort the disturbed. Has he not? That He has come to seek and save sinners, outcasts and outsiders like you and I. And that He has come to reach the
1: unreachable and to redeem the seemingly unredeemable. Behold Jesus, the Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You and we praise You for saving
0: outcasts and outsiders, that You by Your Spirit and through Your Gospel have made people estranged to You because of sin. You've made people estranged to You family through Jesus. People like the Samaritan. People like the Roman Gentile here. People like us. And Lord, we praise You that You have done this work and that You are doing this work and that You will do this work as we look forward to the day of Your return, Jesus. And until that day, Spirit, we ask that You would give us what we have not. That You would teach us what we know not. And that You would make us what we are not for Your glory, honor, and praise. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.